0: Hello, I'm Amy Stevenson, and this is The Human CEO. In each episode, we'll be meeting with CEOs and senior leaders to understand their approach to leadership, the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. We'll also be asking what they feel it takes to be a great leader.
1: As a CEO, you don't want to think you've got all the answers. You need to be prepared to to listen to other people. You You end up with a better result, I think, if you do. So you've got to be prepared to be vulnerable, confident enough to show your weakness.
0: Welcome to The Human CEO. I'm your host, Amy Stevenson, and today I'm joined by John Priddo. John's the CEO of Boku Inc, one of the world's leading providers of carrier commerce and mobile identity solutions. Before joining Boku, John started Visa Europe's e-commerce division and was the lead executive on the introduction of chip and pin technology. John's a hands-on executive and is as comfortable with the nuts and bolts of operating regulations as he is with strategy. With over 25 years of payments experience, John joins us today to share his insight as a leader and a human CEO. Thank you for joining us today, John. It's great to have you with us. Yeah. Hi, Amy. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to speaking with you. So so could you tell us a little bit about the organisation that you lead, please?
1: Yeah. So um, Boku is a payments company, and we started off life by um, working on a sort of niche of payments, which is allowing people to buy stuff. And charge it to their phone bills. Mm-hmm. And uh, by degrees, we put together a network that spans now about 90 countries, about sort of 230 different mobile network operators around the world, and numbers amongst its customers people like Apple, Sony, Spotify, Microsoft, Google, Netflix, Facebook, uh, Tencent, Ryan essentially every large digital company you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, we've uh, evolve the company a little bit. So we don't just do that, but we now also started to integrate other payment methods as well, particularly in Asia. So it's really all things payment for all things digital uh, with most of the world's largest digital companies.
0: Fantastic. And so you've been CEO there, it's almost eight years in the CEO Um, position.
1: Yeah, I guess that's right. So yeah, I started it, where well, I became CEO in 2014. I joined the company in about 2012. And I was associated with the company, in fact, before it with a, a company that was sort of rolled up into Boku before the company was even started. So I've been around for a while. Wow.
0: And so as leader of that organisation, as the leader of Boku in, in the stage of its life cycle that it is, what kind of challenges are you up against at the minute?
1: Um, right now, I suppose a lot of it is about scaling. Uh, how do we take a company that's reached a certain size and how do we get it to carry on growing? Um, mm-hmm. You know, with an organisation that has effectively been taken from a startup, which is where we're pretty much well inherited, where you're trying lots of things, throwing them against the wall, figuring out what gets traction. And then you sort of reach this happy point where you're sort of public and you're profitable and you're all of these things that you've been striving to do for the first period of your life, Then you have to start operationalizing some of your processes to be able to to grow and to not just worry about getting revenue in, but also operating efficiently and being able to grow and to do more things more rapidly at a a greater cadence. To do things at scale is harder than to to just get things going. And it's hard enough to get things going, honestly. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I suppose finding the people to be able to scale as well at the minute must be a, a little bit of a challenge.
1: It is. I mean, we run a very distributed company. So something about Vogue I didn't say is we have about 300 people, mm. and you know I can tell you just in all honesty, I actually don't even know how many locations we've got because we have people in oh, Estonia, in in uh, Düsseldorf and Munich, in Mumbai, in London, in San Francisco. In mm-hmm. Paris, in Dublin, you know, all over the place. Uh, you know, in Tokyo, in um, Beijing, and we have people in sort of small offices in various special And I literally haven't counted them all up to tell you exactly how many locations we have. That helps us with some of our recruitment challenges because um, you know we kind of can go to where the people are rather than people having to come to us.
0: Fantastic. But you know, we're not
1: immune like uh, you know, many organisations. There is you know a shortage somehow of technical talent
0: mm-hmm. and.
1: Uh, We we managed to get the thing right of being able to organize the company in such a way that it was multi-locational. For many startups, the biggest problem that you have is it's probably not even getting out of the foot, fir- it's getting out of the first room. It's when yeah. sort of you move to the second floor and you get these divisions between, oh, these guys on the third floor, this, and those, you know. We never had that. We were from the start an organization that had a, a management team split between the US and the UK, and we were able to run this multi-locational um, company. And it's been a, a huge part of what makes you know, Voku successful.
0: Is uh, it's, it's doing that. Yeah, so you were leading the pack in that, that sort of remote working,
1: yeah, we certainly didn't discover Zoom um, when COVID came along. We had been yeah. uh, working with Zoom beforehand. And yeah. you know, it's very often that we'll have you know, projects in Boku where, I don't know, one person in one continent will be working with a, another person in another continent with a merchant on a third for a connection to somebody else on a fourth continent. And it gives us real advantages that you, we can fix problems you know, right around the clock. Uh, yeah. And we have you know a lot of people working on a lot of things, but it has its stresses. I mean, the days get longer. Um, yeah. you know, many of our people have to sort of get up early or to stay up late to work on things. Yeah, but right. it's, it's it's been a process that works for us. Pre-pandemic, a, a classic boku question is, are you in tomorrow? Because you know, okay. people kind of work from where they like for most of the time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose that the diversity of thought that comes with that must be really powerful to have people coming from all different perspectives working on the same project, if you're looking at a global team.
1: Yeah, I mean, diversity is a, um, you know, diversity of thought, I think, is, is important and that you want to have lots of opinions, but it has to be moderated, I think, by a common culture. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the things I'm most proud of is when uh, we were recruiting somebody um, in Malaysia, as it happens, and we were going through the uh, interviewing process and in the course of the interviewing process that uh, individual spoke to some of our employees in Singapore, in Japan, the US and the UK. And do you know what she said? She said they were all the same. In other words, <laughs> we were able to create a culture that was um, common to, to Boku around the world. You know, we are 300 odd people. And as you've heard, we're dealing with organizations of many thousands of employees with thousands of times more valuable than us. And yet we are the one who looks like the joined up global company. And they are the ones who look like sort of regional fiefdoms or department here doesn't know what another siloed department elsewhere is doing. And that's really being important to our business success about interacting with global companies. The fact we can have a genuinely global culture. Uh, that operates obviously. People coming from all different places and you know having different experiences. You know, not everybody sort of highly educated and you know different sort of a uh, you know, gender and another mixes, conventional stuff. But, but having a common thread of culture is incredibly important to the effective operation of a company.
0: And, and what steps have you taken to achieve that? Because that must have been a, a you know an overt process that you put in place to achieve that. Um. <laughs>
1: It's a great question and I wish I knew what it was that we could bottle. I mean, I must have done something right Mm. um, in terms of not ruining the culture, if you like, or being able to to sustain and to nurture it. But somehow it comes from constant reinforcement. A culture in a company has to belong to the company, has to feel natural. I mean, that's some certain things that we have as beliefs, if if you will. And one of the sort of beliefs that's sort of written on the wall is about assume positive intent. When we've got all of this remote working taking place, then, um, you know, it's very easy for misunderstandings to perpetuate. You know, email doesn't transmit nuance. You're often communicating with your colleagues and you're not meeting with them. So having that idea of of collaborating, having merchant uh, you know, you, know, uh, you know assuming this positive intent so that you know if somebody says something you don't disagree with you don't disagree. You don't just shoot off some kind of email that says how terrible they are and how you're right and they're wrong you know we're actually trying to fix it you know we want to be ambitious and that's a key you know another of our key tenets but underpinning all of that is just a belief and a lot of people say this but it's it's very rare how people do it of trying to um you have to put our merchant's interests first. I mean, mm-hmm. genuinely try to listen to customers and genuinely try to do what they say. So you can do those things formally in your sort of corporate infrastructure, if you like, of having these corporate beliefs, but they have to be true. They have to yes. be things that people actually believe in mm-hmm. and, and you know, select for, and they have to be effective. And I think it's a combination of trying to nurture that to record it and to perpetuate it is what we've done. It's not being some kind of big top-down, oh, I think it's great, that's the corporate culture. It yes. has to be something that's organic and it's believed in, which, if anything, I'm, I'm the custodian of rather than the creator.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I could completely agree. I think it needs to be authentic, doesn't it? If it's delivered by edict, it's not, not necessarily going to be taken up with the same veracity mm. as if it was authentic and came from from the team. That's the right. Outside. I mean, any of the time you
1: can go along to these um, uh, you know, big companies and you'll see they they might have their values painted on the wall. And in those cases, you know, the values are kind of used as a weapon. So, ah, yeah. oh, you can win an argument ah, yeah. like, oh, I'm doing X first or what have yeah. you. But it's not something that people believe in, in terms of a, a natural purpose. No. But, I mean, another sort of core belief of mine, by the way, is I do think that, um, Great companies have to balance, you know, a number of things. And so, at our management meeting, as a rule, we effectively have a try to have a fairly standard agenda. And um, obviously, our shareholders are interested in our commercial results. So, what we mm-hmm. would say, our commercial lens. Um, and they don't, you know, in the best way of the world, our, our shareholders, our investors, don't really care about, um, you know, the merchant or the operation. Um, they just want to know if we're making a ton of money. Okay. Um, but obviously you can't make a ton of money unless your operation is good and you sort of do what the merchants or our customers want us to achieve. So you've really got to balance the the interests of the commercial with the interests of the of the merchant. The third leg of the stool, which is like the third leg of our agenda. So we look at commercial, operational, but we also look at cultural. Because none of those things happen without um, you know, you know, is this a great place to work? I mean, we always try to be sort of flexible and and, a sort of good employer and all the rest of it. But we need to make this a great place to work because without it being a great place to work, you can't deliver the correct operation without the correct operation, you can't deliver the commercial returns that your shareholders want. And so we always try to look at those three things. It's very easy to be distracted in a management meeting and spend all your time talking about commercial stuff or some operational problem. But by having the agenda that puts cultural there, we'll spend a good time you know, talking about that you know, people type issues because mm-hmm. people make it work. And it's really yeah. just understanding that the, the different constituents have got different interests. I mean, people want to know it's a great place to work and they get growth. Motions want to know, you know, does it actually do what you think? Does it work? Mm-hmm. And you know, shareholders want to know, are you making money? And all of those three things are interdependent. That's the the key, I think, to our management philosophy. Understanding that those three things can only work together.
0: Fantastic, brilliant. And and in terms of your leadership career, then, John, can you walk us through how that happened? Was it always going to be the case that you were going to sit on the CEO seat, or because there's some great organisations in your in your career, so from IBM to Visa, were you always sort of headed for the the C-suite, as it were, or was it quite an organic process?
1: Well, it's fair to say maybe that. that it might sound strange to say, but I know not being sort of that ambitious for the career, but I do think that there's a, there's never been some sort of grand plan that said I would sit up doing this. Right. Um, you know, I think life or, or people somehow sort of split into actors and reactors, mm-hmm. people who sort of do things and other people who react to those who are doing it. Mm-hmm. And I found, you know, whatever position I've been in, that um, I've been an actor. I've had ideas of things that I've wanted to achieve, and it's been the ideas that have impelled me. And to some extent, obviously, the idea—you know—if you have ideas, then almost naturally you you find yourself percolating up large organisations like uh, IBM or, or, or Visa. Yeah. And I guess for the last X, you know, I've been sort of c levelled, um, and you know, there came a point when it was natural for me to be, you know, as it were, in charge of the whole thing. I think and. But it wasn't. It wasn't to say that I was ambitious to be the CEO. It was ambitious to do the things that we needed to do. I mean, okay. In fact, uh, even when I came here between you know to Boku and sort of uh, assume uh, and came into the management, team, which was actually back in twenty twelve, mm-hmm. um, I stepped back from a CEO position to be the chief business officer mainly because I thought I could make a difference, and there were some things that I wanted to do. I mean, yes. I guess I found myself always operating, you know, as though you know we were just driving the company forward, and I don't know in particular about the, the position I've been in I've always tried to do the best uh, for the organization you know to move it forward and I guess maybe that's characteristics that you that you end up with in a CEO yeah. but it's never been it's been it's not been the position that's motivated me it's been just do it mean, I'm not proud of being the CEO I'm proud of what we've collectively been able to achieve
0: yeah fantastic and I guess that's part of it but, and also leads me nicely onto my next question are there characteristics that you think are important for all Chief executives too, or, or business leaders.
1: Yeah, well, somebody said, you know, what is the job of a CEO?" Um, I think you've got to have some type of vision about where you want to go that you're able to articulate, which you can you know, assimilate. You don't have to have it all yourself because you need to. You know, more brains often come up with better ideas. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to be good at picking people around you to, to help it because you can't do it all. There's yep. another sort of truism I found, and you see this a lot with sort of junior managers is that you know, everybody thinks that the more senior you get the more powerful you are but in practice there's an inverse to that as well you know when you are a sole contributor your success is effectively entirely in your own hands what you do is what um, you know you're judged on what you do but the more senior you get the more you're judged on what other people do for you mm-hmm. and so almost by definition you know, i did a lot of work when i was a junior person and now I just sort of sit in a room and ask people to do things, which is not quite the same thing as sort of doing work. You do have this sort of level of, um, you know, your own actions are less of a determinant of your overall success. And it's quite difficult, I think, for new managers to, to as it were, release themselves to the fact but other people are going to be determining or the actions of other people are determining their success people yes. have trouble with that and you've got to be able to do that you've got to be able to pick people and let them get on and do the job mm-hmm. and uh, certainly at the beginning you have then got to make sure the other job of the ceo is to make sure the money doesn't run out so your yes. money counts so yes. three things of the ceo you've got to have a you, you know you've got to be able to set a direction a tone a culture you've got to pick people to execute it and trust them to get on with it and you've got to make sure the money doesn't run out. Yep. That's the basic okay. job.
0: Good advice. And was there an experience earlier on in your career or, or an influence earlier on in your career that has shaped your approach to leadership? Um, I think it's sort of developed
1: organically. I mean, you obviously learn something from people that you're around,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, and, and certainly having people who are prepared to trust and empower you. I mean, this, this latter point, you know around delegation that I was talking about early on that for junior managers they often try to be protective of their employees and I think that makes them into a good boss if they protect them but ultimately you know I, I realise you know relatively on that, that it, to the employee it feels like you're not being trusted I and mean, if somebody is protecting you or sheltering you from work then you end up how does that feel it feels that you're not being trusted if it's actually my job and, and even if you make somebody busy and so you having managers around you that have been able to help you with with that delegation or that you would be able to witness and learn from. Um, I think another, you know, there was another question I remember where somebody said, what is it all great leaders have? Mm -hmm. And and the surprising answer was vulnerability. But if you think about um, people that you work with, um, you know, the greatest bosses are the ones that had some kind of defect that caused their employees to want to help to to Mm -hmm. plug the gap that they had. Now, I don't know if I have that, um, you know, well, I, I'm a reasonably self-confident person, but, but I definitely have sort of learned from that the idea of just asking people what they think. I mm-hmm. mean, you don't, you, as a CEO, you don't want to think you've got all the answers. Yeah, um, yeah. You, and you, you need to be prepared to, to, you know, to listen to other people. You, get up, you end up with a better result, I think, if you do. So you've got to be prepared to be vulnerable, confident yeah. enough to show your weakness.
0: Yeah, absolutely. There is real power in the vulnerability. It links to the authenticity, doesn't it? Which I think can also be really powerful.
1: Yeah. You know, apologise when you screw things up as well. Because yeah. it happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so... Thinking about someone that was maybe wanting to follow in your footsteps, so that either they were right at the start of their career and they wanted to develop a career in leadership or they were just about to take a step up into a leadership role, what would be the advice that you'd offer them?
1: Well, I think it sort of relates back to something I said earlier on. Care about something, Do you know, it, it, it's about achieving something and the position comes with it. If you're just ambitious, ambitious for a position, it's hollow, I mean, it doesn't yeah. achieve much. It's it's doing something which makes it important. So unless you've got a you know an itch that you need to scratch in terms of, of, of actually achieving something within the particular company, then you know you, there's no point in you being a leader. You need to be a leader in order to achieve something, not just for its own sake. And people who just want to be a leader for its own sake, you'll find that it's pretty shallow and that mm-hmm. uh, you won't be very satisfied when you get there because the day after you get that big promotion. As they say, you still get up in the morning and stick on your pants one leg at a time. You're still the same person. <laughs> it doesn't make any difference to who you are. No. So it's what you achieve that, that you know you should be ambitious for, not yeah. for the position itself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and are you influenced by a, a particular leader? Is there anyone either in your past, so famous or otherwise, are there leaders that you admire? And if so, what is it about them?
1: There's a fairly sort of obscure person who's not very well known now, um, okay. who I... Um, certainly inspired me at a certain point in my career and his name, his name was D. Hawk, D-E-E Hawk. Hmm. and he was the person who founded Visa um, okay. it seems strange to think that he founded Visa and he founded it actually as a cooperative and he was a uh, you know, charismatic and at the times he kind of went off the rails, to be honest. I think he got things went to his head towards the end of his, his tenure at Visa, but he, I came in just after he had left, actually, but his imprint was everywhere over the organisation. And he's not very well known because you know, Visa was start, started as, as a sort of cooperative of banks. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had a, a very clear vision as about how a system could be created, uh, with it was self-organising, and uh, with all of the various parts, with, with power pushed to the periphery. And that I found very influential over my career. I was inspired by, by his vision, although I never actually met him, actually. But he was um, definitely somebody who, who inspired me.
0: And when you say that he was, I can't remember the phrase, but something like he was, his vision was stamped all over the business or he was stamped all over the business. What does that mean exactly? Well,
1: you know, at some point, you know, it was you know, the way it was organised, the way decisions were made. You know, if you like the culture in terms of, of how um you know there was a degree of openness within the organization it was somewhat unstuffy um, mm-hmm. but it was also just the the, the structure because at the time if you think of visa it was a relatively small enabling central organization and you know the banks were really the the the, the organizations that were with it mm-hmm. and you know he he thought of all that he created it i mean there was an alternative model that was big and centralized but he created a very big, much more successful, decentralized, self-governing, sort of autonomous, auto-correcting organization that ended up, if you like, beating American Express or beating yeah. card to become the largest payment system in the world and also mm-hmm. beating MasterCard or you know, being bigger than MasterCard. And that came from you know, the, the, you know, basically the original decisions that he made and the, the risks that he took. So yeah, yeah I am, I'm a big fan of d
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that one. We've not had that one before, so it's good to to hear. And I'm always interested to understand what what books have influenced you or what you're reading at the minute that you'd be happy to share with us because I think what we always do every year, we try and compile a list of books. For for, to share with our HR directors and the CEOs that we work with, are there any particular books that you've read recently or been influenced by in the past? Um, So, in terms of books
1: that I've I've read that have influenced me, I think there's there's a couple I'd pick out. I I obviously read them some time ago, so I'm not reading them now. Um, One would be um, The Selfish Gene, which is a book by uh, Dawkins. Dawkins, sorry, Um, and. You know, he, he went on later to a bit of a sort of radical atheist. But this, this thing is about really trying to understand these principles of self-organising systems. And he first introduced me to game theory mm-hmm. uh, and this idea of, of the game of prisoners' dilemma and how the systems organise themselves. So really, you know, interesting question sort of drawn from, from, from biology. The second book that I'd pick out would be uh, one by a guy called Yared Diamond called Guns, Germs and Steel and the basic question that that, if, that it tries to answer if you like is why was it that it was you know a british ship carrying british criminals to australia and not an australian ship carrying australian criminals to britain what is it that you, know, you know, in what sense is it that you know why wasn't the you know, spanish conquistadors leaving spain and uh, you know, an army of I don't know, a like hundred people, if you like, under Pizarro overthrowing a you know, million-man empire in South America. And, and why was it not that people leaving from South America and invading Europe? Yeah. And it's a kind of it's a question that most people um, you know, would think of, you know is something to do with the people. But what the, the book shows is that, you know essentially that in the long run, history is somehow geography. That you are you know, that the people are shaped by where they are. That, uh, you know maritime you know at one point in italy was the center of the world because the world revolved around the mediterranean and then when the ships were enabled you to sail across the atlantic then obviously it's going to be the spanish the portuguese and the british that are you know, have uh, uh, you know atlantic you know, seaports and can do more with it and, and italy's influence faded so guns germs and steel yeah. and the selfish g those would be my two Probably yeah, not a that's lot like about it. sort of self-help books for business but frameworks for thinking about mm. how decisions get made and how you know uh, how people interact with each other I would say
0: yeah. fascinating they both sound like a really good read thank you for those I'm gonna add those to my list which to my husband's dismay they'll be buying more books and and so can you tell us a little bit about boku and what's going to be happening over the next six nine twelve months
1: well there you go sort of modest world domination I think is our, <laughs> our, slogan. our slogan Um so we're going to be doing more of more of the same. So we're ha- hoping to grow. So having sort of led to a position where we're very well placed in this so-called direct carrier billing, buy stuff and charge it to the phone bill. We're expanding our business, you know, particularly in Asia with with mobile wallets. And so mm-hmm. uh, companies like uh, Spotify, Sony use us to be able to help their customers to buy things with mainstream payment instruments. And we're looking to try to do more of that in more countries. And you know, it's all growth and, and getting bigger and to be more relevant, you know, better to help them to acquire new users and to grow their businesses. Ultimately that's what we're here for.
0: Fantastic. Well, that sounds great. Well, John, thank you for taking the time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. It's been a, a great episode and I hope everyone that's listening has enjoyed it. But I appreciate your time, so thank you.
1: That's all right. Well, I've enjoyed it too. Always good to chat. Thanks, Amy. Thank you.